Hey guys, as I record this intro on Sunday night, I'm in the middle of a pretty rough flu, so I'm not going to say much by way of an intro, except that I absolutely loved this conversation. I found it very challenging, but very insightful. So here's Christina Cleveland talking about why we group each other, why we categorize each other. Enjoy. So, Christina Cleveland, give us a little background on who you are, what you've studied, and the work that you're doing these days. Sure. Right now, I'm um, a professor at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I'm actually a social psychologist, so it's a little bit strange that I'm at a divinity school, which focuses on theology and other um, aspects of religion. But it turns out that... um, the work that I do as a social psychologist actually is a um, integrates well with what's happening at Duke Divinity School because um, I'm really interested in groups. I'm really interested in whether groups get along, don't get along, the identities that groups form, um, the ways that they tend to, um, the sort of the groupishness that is a big part of our world. And it turns out there's a lot of that in the church. So <laughs> there's plenty to study there. You don't say. <laughs> so uh, where did you go to school and what did you study and get your degrees in? I did my undergrad at Dartmouth College. Um, I was a psychological and brain sciences major and I was also a sociology major. And then I did my PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and my PhD is in social psychology. So I kind of bridged the two together. And most of my PhD research was on groups and group motivation Um, the types of identities that we form when we're in a group and um, how the group experience impacts us as individuals. It's hard to imagine any possible combination of studies that would be more applicable to the questions people are asking themselves right now in, in America in 2016. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think social psychology in general has a lot to offer, and it's sort of an undermined resource. But I think particularly anyone who's looking at persuasion, attitudes, prejudice, non-conscious processes, and particularly how they play a role in our groupishness, it's, you know, it's probably doing work that's relevant to the election, but not just that. I mean, if you look at Brexit and just so much of what's going on around the world, even the Syrian crisis that's happening right now, all of this really, at, at its core, these are questions about groups and how, how we decide who's part of us and who's part of them. So give us a obviously oversimplified answer to the question, why do we group people in the first place? Well, yeah, you know, there are probably a few different reasons. One is we tend to group everything. We categorize everything. So, um, you know, we categorize or group animals into species. We, we group states into red states and blue states. We group time into eras. So part of it just has to do with, you know, we're cognitive misers. We're naive psychologists. Whether we're trained or not, we want to understand our world. We want to be able to predict our world. And so grouping similar items or similar objects into categories is really helpful. Um, Of course, we apply that to people too, which is um, where it starts to get a bit more complicated because um, once we start involving people, then now you're involving self-esteem and identity and some psychological 
factors and experiences that we tend to hold very closely and be very defensive of. So, I mean, I think one kind of oversimplified answer is we just group everything. And so we group social identities as well. Um, Another reason why we tend to group together is for kind of evolutionary reasons, survival. If we can uh, find people to collaborate with, usually we have a better chance of survival, historically speaking, and even now. And um, some social psychology research actually shows that part of the role of self-esteem is actually, it kind of serves as a sociometer, um, like kind of like a speedometer, but for social status. And so if our self-esteem is low, it means we're actually not well connected to our community. We're not, we're not liked enough. And so we actually want to keep that high simply because it's a function uh, for our survival. You know, like we want to make sure people like us at least enough so that people will have our back if we need them to. <laughs> right. And so when you talk about self-esteem, you're using it in, in just the kind of standard colloquial sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a group can recognize if one of its members has low or high self-esteem and that actually, so at a subconscious or unconscious level, we are incentivized to have higher self-esteem so that we will be protected by the members of our group. Yeah, I mean, so low self-esteem might be an indicator that uh, we need to work harder to develop stronger social ties. And so there might be some motivation for that. I want to do something to make people like me so that I'll be safe in the context of the group. Wow, that's interesting because it's kind of like you just took the entire self-help book section of the Barnes and Noble and said, this is all about evolutionary survival, not happiness. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I I mean, people would say that happiness is related to survival. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's part of it. Another reason why groups form is because we have limited resources. Once humans realized that coalition building um, was one way to survive against, um, you know, the elements of the wild, bears, whoever, then, you know, it it became clear that there were only going to be so many resources. And if other people are building coalitions around, you know, in the community, then now we have a resource scarcity issue and it's an actual competitive situation. Um, And we're not just competing against a bear for survival. We're actually competing against other human beings, perhaps for that bear. And right now, I mean, it's, it's not surprising in that sense. um, Why, why, you see things like Brexit and Trump's election in that context, because whenever uh, resources are perceived as scarce, we tend to see more hostility between groups. And social psychologists have kind of collaborated on this research and have shown that, you know, like historically, when uh, cotton prices in the South, in the American South went down, there were more lynchings of black people. And this is like, you know, post-slavery. So kind of from like the 1880s until the 1930s, the study was conducted looking at all the lynchings. And there's a strong negative correlation, of course, between lynchings and cotton prices. And the explanation is that, you know, poor black sharecroppers and poor white sharecroppers were competing over the same resources at this point. And so when cotton prices went down, poor white sharecroppers retaliated by lynching black people. And so more recently, people have seen that um, attitudes towards immigration tend to be just fine when unemployment is low. But when unemployment goes higher, all of a sudden people are a lot more, have a lot more negative attitudes towards immigration, even though the jobs that immigrants tend to take are not the ones that the people who are concerned about unemployment would actually want. But so there's a problem because unemployment is really low right now. And yet there is a strong spirit of 
anti-immigration. Yeah. How might we explain that phenomenon? Oh, that's, that's just another resource scarcity issue. So there's a perception that job opportunities are diminished for people who have a high school education. And so it's not so much immigration as outsourcing. That's probably actually the cause of that resource scarcity, but we tend not to be rational when it comes to resource scarcity. So, um, I mean, so if you, if you go back to the, you know, the cotton example, the problem with low cotton prices actually was like wealthy white people who set those cotton prices, right. Who set the market, not black people, but who got retaliated against. It was the people that were, maybe the scapegoats are the most um, vulnerable. So I would say that's probably the case now um, as well. Another way of thinking about um, a resource is who gets to control the culture. It's very competitive around that because really only one group can control a culture, can dominate a culture. And for so long in the United States, sort of white Western European culture was the dominant culture. And now with the increase in not only immigration, but also the birth rates among brown and black Americans far exceeds those of white Americans. And so we're seeing diminishing impact or uh, dominance of that white sort of Western European culture. And that's seen as a resource scarcity problem as well. There's conflict, there's competition over whose America is it really? Who belongs here? Who who should have the most influence in the culture? Um, and I mean, on, on one level, you know, I think there's an explanation for it. I'm, I'm 36. I was born in 1980. And a study was conducted from 1980 to, ni- to 2010 that looked at um, how the U.S. was changing in terms of racial ethnic demographics. And in 1980, Two-thirds of all spaces in the United States were all white spaces. And so they defined all white spaces as a white person could essentially go about their entire day, their entire life, work, school, education, you know, church, everything, and never really encounter a person of color. And then by 2010, when I turned 30, that had been reduced to one third of all spaces. And so there is really this shift in sort of cultural dominance or cultural influence that people can perceive as, you know, a scarcity problem. And then, of course, immigration would be at least partially blamed for that by some people. Yeah, it would actually be illogical to not link that to immigration if it was about people of color in your space. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's totally unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some really interesting social psych research also shows that we tend to uh, not have a problem with immigrants as long as they don't challenge our cultural customs. And so um, that helps to explain why, you know, uh, someone from Sweden who already knows English and barely has an accent, if anything, their accent is seen as exotic and interesting, um, isn't really going to be someone that people are concerned about versus someone who has different food, has different language, looks different, etc. Yeah, I think of like British friends, you know, it's like, if anything, it's just like 10 points for your British accent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So much of the culture is shared. Yeah, I have a friend who's British, who, um, came to the United States as a child undocumented and um, talks a lot about how nobody ever questioned whether she was here like legally or not. And actually when her mom um, who brought her here to the United States applied for social services for them, it was revealed that she was not in fact a U.S. citizen and did not have a green card. Um, And the immigration officer said, yeah, your daughter actually needs to go back to England and like actually immigrate here 
legally. My friend was like eight years old at the time or something. And she said she remembers her mom telling the immigration officer over my dead body. Is that happening? You need to just like expedite her right here on U.S. soil. She is not leaving me. And he just acquiesced. And it's just interesting to to imagine how that would play out, you know, if this were a brown woman who spoke Spanish or, you know. <laughs> I mean, you, you basically cannot imagine that happening for an immigrant of color. Uh-uh, no. And now my friend, you know, she immigrated here when she was a kid, had a British accent. Now she doesn't even have one. So no one would even know that she's British. And that, that she actually, you know, was an undocumented immigrant for, you know, like a year while she was here. So... Okay, so speaking of sort of like unconscious stuff going on, there's a way that someone could be listening to this and go, oh, great, this like professor of color from a liberal seminary is explaining to me why I'm such a bigot or whatever. But I don't think that that's what you're doing. And part of the explanation is that this stuff goes on in the part of our brain that is lower, like like physically lower and prior evolutionarily to the part of our brain where we have consciousness and and we're aware of our thoughts and our will. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the brain and why, why this is not just condescension to explain this? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think if anything, it's the opposite of condescension, because in a way I'm normalizing it and saying, you know, these biases are things that we all have. And it's not just white people who have these biases. It's not just uh, rich people who have these biases or, you know, just college educated people. I think we tend to acquire these biases simply by swimming in the water of American society. And so in terms of the actual like science of it, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we have developed higher order cognitive processing. And the only reason of bringing up these biases is to raise them into conscious awareness because we actually have a prefrontal cortex that is capable of overriding them if we are aware of them. And so it's really an opportunity for us to say, hey, I do this, you do this, everybody does this. And if we continue going on autopilot using, you know, just simply relying on our amygdala, our hypothalamus, you know, just um, only being driven by some of our more primitive aspects of the brain, which actually are helpful, but they're really helpful for like fight or flight. (laughs) They're not really helpful for uh, distinguishing very minute differences that can actually be the difference between uh, someone's life or not. Um, which we see a lot in the criminal justice system, where the number one factor of whether you end up on death row is your race, not the actual crime, not your education level, not your class. It's just race. And so at this point, it is like a life or death situation. You know, are we simply going to rely on these kind of lower order cognitive processes, or are we going to bring them into awareness so that we can use the processes that we've developed as human beings to override them? Yeah. And it's like, I've been reading a little bit of uh, Jonathan Haidt oh, yeah. talking about what goes on in, in our moral intuitions, like in a, in a nanosecond or in a, a second or two. And mm-hmm. it's like, if you are comfortable with the fact, like, for instance, I'm not comfortable with the fact all race and class and gender aside, I'm not comfortable with the fact that I, as a human being, unconsciously and immediately judge attractive people as more worthy of my trust than unattractive people. Or to put it even more scientifically, people with symmetrical features, large eyes, and big smiles, or whatever whatever those things are that make someone attractive to me, a medium amount of body fat, whatever you want to call it, right? I'm not comfortable with the fact that 
a person with those features is more likely to be hired by me, for instance, or someone like me in a position to hire people or in a position to grant scholarships or in a position to adjudicate a criminal case or whatever. I'm not comfortable with that because I have a conviction that all human lives are infinitely valuable. And if I find in myself through whatever means, whether it be through my parents or through evolution or whatever, something that I'm doing that undermines that equal infinite value of each person, it behooves me to change that or to be aware of it. And that's really all you're saying. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we can. I mean, I think awareness is the, the beginning. I don't think awareness is all the work that we need to do, but it's certainly the beginning. We can't begin to address. So certainly, you know, we start by saying, yes, I'm aware. I, I'm biased towards, you know, people who are more symmetrical or not, or I'm biased towards people who um, are tall and thin or, or not. And then beyond that, we need to also start asking the questions like, well, you know, what are the structures that create the environment where these biases flourish too? And again, we can't even begin that process if we don't just recognize that it is, that it is a problem. Yeah. One of the things that I often hear from conservatives when we start talking about maybe Black Lives Matter or Syrian refugees, especially, especially Syrian refugees, is them saying, well, hey, where is all the outcry about Christians being persecuted in other parts of the country, including the Middle East and some in Asia? And I was thinking about that when you were talking about the fact that just naming these biases does not actually carry a particular message just because we happen to be in America where the dominant culture is like white and Christian, but the dominant culture in China is Asian and atheist communist or left mm -hmm. sort of leftover communist or maybe Taoist uh, or Confucian. What you're saying is this just happens there too. It happened in Rwanda when the Tutsis start getting more prominence and the Hutus feel mm -hmm. their uh, institutions being threatened. So perhaps an answer to someone who says, well, just why don't we focus on the Christians first is, well, okay, if we're going to say we're going to focus on the Christians in the Middle East, then if we're really acknowledging the principle that is causing the injustice in the Middle East for Christians, we should also acknowledge if we're going to be consistent, the principle in America that is causing injustice toward people of color, the principle in Syria that's causing injustice toward, you know, well, that I mean, that's really people fleeing civil war. But I don't know, there, there's something there about like, it seems like a way past the impasse of like, well, yeah, your cause is important, but why don't you care about my cause? And therefore we can end the conversation. It's like, no, good point. It's all the same cause. It doesn't end the conversation to mention another instance of this same cause of human bias, right? Right. And I think the longer people do the work that I'm in, which people would call, you know, peace and justice studies, technically my field is reconciliation, which is like peace and justice studies plus theology. But um, the longer you do this work and the more you travel, I, I just got back last week from um, Cape Town. At least once a year, I go on a pretty significant pilgrimage to learn about justice work that's happening around the world. I mean, you see it's all interconnected, 
Right. You see, you see that inequality here in the United States impacts inequality in Cape Town or Palestine or Syria. Um, and so it's true. I mean, I think these are, these are connected. Uh, you can't fight one battle without fighting all of them. I think what's important for us to recognize in the conversation around these biases and these inequalities is that we have to apply a power analysis to it as well. And so what's going on with Christians being persecuted around the world is a bit complex given Christianity's dominance as a world religion and the way that it's also a force of power. And oftentimes the conservative people who are really concerned about the Christians who are being persecuted, which is in and of itself a tragedy and something that needs to be addressed, they are really concerned about the Christians who they as Western conservatives have deemed Christian. So there's a power dynamic there, too, where it's like, well, we approve of this group. Okay, so I'm I'm a little skeptical of that claim because I feel like, um, for instance, if you were to map out all the Christians in like Turkey or Iran, a lot of them would be like Coptic or Eastern Orthodox or like Byzantine Catholic or something. And I've never had one person sort of make that distinction. I mean, I've never of, of the. 10 plus people who have made this argument to me, I, I have not perceived any delineation with them. They were using it as, as opposed to the largely Islamic community of Syrian refugees. So wh- where are you getting this, that definition of Christian is, is narrow? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, um, a fair critique. I, I think, let me rephrase, because I think I see it more as they're one of us, like we have deemed them Christian over and against the Muslims. Sure, yeah. Not to say that these are like heartless souls who don't care about lives, but it's also very much about winning and the continuing domination of Christianity, too. Now, is that true if someone's totally unaware of that? Because I think it'd be hard for someone making one of these arguments. I can imagine them saying, look, we got to protect our own or maybe not even that in-groupy, just sort of like. This is where it's hard. I don't think that people, I mean, you'd probably agree. I don't think that people understand their motivations very well when they start pitting religious groups against each other in their own mind, you know? No. And I also think, at, so I also think it's related to, like, we're, we're really concerned about the Christians in Turkey who are being persecuted because we're concerned about the diminishing influence of Christianity here in the United States too, right? So it's again, going back to self, self self-esteem, identity, and these are all really interconnected. So what's so interesting about essentially the diversion from we should care about Black Lives Matter to, well, actually we should care about Christians in Turkey, which actually means you care about me. (laughs) So it kind of brings it back to me in a way that just keeping the conversation on Black Lives Matter wouldn't, if anything, the conversation on Black Lives Matter would interrogate them, their conservatism, not affirm their conservatism um, or their group identity, whatever, it, you know, whatever that is, it's, if it's, it's, if it's kind of Christianity or, so that's why I think they just, it just starts to get really complex and it's really about who, who am I personally connected to, but then personally connected to really brings it back to self in a way. Yeah. And this stuff is, this stuff is so hard because it's, it's really counterintuitive to our experience that, that this is going on below the surface 
if anyone is listening and, and feeling like they're being attacked right now, let me just tell you, it's hard for me to listen to it as well. Even as someone on the left who is kind of more theoretically more prone to accept these kind of arguments, it's, it's still difficult for me to like, to look at these and, and even to always feel confident that, that these are accurate claims. But I, I do tend to find that when I, when I take them seriously, I find them to be pretty accurate and then I am forced to modify change a bit. I'd like to go down through a list of like several individual factors that we use to separate people and group and, and have you maybe kind of expound this into a more concrete way. Sure. So let's start with socioeconomic class. What are our brains doing about class? This is, this is one that's really close for me uh, just to be a little confessional here. I realized a few years ago that I am like totally a classist. I, I at my core think that most poor people are like not worth my time compared to other people. It's something I have to fight against. Um, and I, I just noticed it driving around Seattle and I, I have these unconscious or like sort of knee jerk reactions to a certain kind of cultural economic class, call it like white trash or whatever you want to, you know, something along those lines that I, I really judge them by default and um, realizing that was, was difficult. So what was going on or, and is still going on in my brain that I do that? Yeah. You know, I think um, so many of us, myself included, you know, I grew up in a, a sort of an upward, an upwardly mobile family. Um, and so many of us are socialized to believe that um, a, our life outcomes are not at all affected by anything outside of our control. Um, and we're also socialized to believe that our success is due to our, um, our personal characteristics. And, if, you know, going back to self-esteem, you know, whenever, whenever individuals get involved, the self gets involved and the self is very, very, very defensive um, for good reasons, right? We talked about why having self-esteem, have high, high self-esteem is actually, you know, it's adaptive in some ways, but we have these natural built-in self-serving biases that we just do not um, challenge. They lead us to interpret ambiguous um, situations in ways that favor us. Um, and, and preserve our high self-esteem. And so, you know, even though I grew up in uh, a family in the Bay Area, um, and I'm one of the 11% of people who were born into a family where both parents went to college. In the United States, it's only 11%, but we have about three and a, we're about three times more likely to go to a four-year college just by being born into that family. All other things being considered, race, class, uh, savings rates, employment rates, all these other things, we're almost three times as likely to go to college. But of course, you know, when I got into Dartmouth, I thought I'm, I'm amazing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you're the 1%. Me. Brilliance. Right. It was, it was like, you know, um, and so when I read those data and I read, wow, maybe I was Dartmouth Brown from the moment I was conceived, given that, <laughs> given that I'm one of the 11%, right. Who, I mean, the vast majority of kids just do not grow up in homes that have as many resources and social connections as my family did. That is painful to realize. Um, but we're socialized to do that. And so um, we see all sorts of, you know, um, socioeconomic division in our culture, um, because I think it's actually, it's painful to, to face the realities that some people are simply given um, more. Op 
I'm not sure that I want to say opportunity. I will say the thing that seems to distinguish us upwardly mobile people from not is that when upwardly mobile people put forth effort, their effort usually leads to a positive outcome. Whereas when socioeconomically oppressed people put forth effort because of community um, resources, family resources, straight up, you know, bias that people like me and you might have who are in positions to hire, um, they, they might work hard, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a positive outcome. And then on top of it, you know, we live in an increasingly stratified society, too, where I I don't know if you heard about it, but I think four years ago, Microsoft announced a new app. What do you call it? Like, it's like a Google Maps or, you know, it's like a GPS. Um, And they ended up taking, you know, taking it back because of the outcry. But it was called um, people nicknamed it the Avoid the Ghetto app. And it was basically like, you know, here's a way to get from downtown where you're, you know, you work in a skyscraper to your suburban home without going through the so-called, you know, high crime areas. And so what's really interesting about that is even though there was a quite a bit of outcry from like probably, you know, progressive folks, uh, Microsoft is, you know, a gajillion, bajillion dollar, you know, company because they actually like do research and know what the market wants, you know? And so that shows that, you know, there's a large set segment of our population that is um, is unaware of some of these biases that we hold against people who are socioeconomically oppressed. Um, we think that we're better than them, and we think that we deserve better than them, and we want to go out of our way to avoid them. And so there's a pretty significant division. And, you know, it's really, really, really terrible in some of the Christian churches that I've studied, where... Um, Basically, if you need any sort of financial assistance, if you're not financially independent, you're automatically not seen as like leadership material, someone who has something to offer, um, someone who um, has wisdom, uh, you know, someone it's, it's really interesting how much there's a caste system. You know, it's kind of like we well, can be part of our church um, to receive food at the soup kitchen. But you couldn't like lead a small group or you couldn't preach or no one's going to ask you to be on the board. It's simply this like this weird belief that, you know, financial independence is a fruit of the spirit or something like that. You know, it's like it's like actually. So there's so much that's tied up in, you know, Christian ethos, but then also the I think the broader American ethos. Well, and isn't that so hard to separate out? Like, for instance, if you read Paul. Paul basically encourages people to become like Catholic priests and nuns. I mean, like if you just read him on his plain sense, it's like, it's better that you don't get married. It's better that you just are free. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine anyone sort of sober mindedly looking at the world and disagreeing that the harvest is plenty and the workers are few, that there's plenty of sort of kingdom work to be done. And yet, It's true. We tend to implicitly trust people who have become successful. But isn't that also a brain thing like you're talking about? Isn't there an evolutionary reason for that that has nothing to do with our Christian faith? Absolutely. You know, I think there are a couple of factors that come to mind. One is we're automatically more trusting and um, we automatically like people who we have had Sort of some sort of um, interaction with or contact with. So the more familiar people are to us, the more we just automatically like them and trust them. 
But, you know, additionally, particularly because, uh, and this is where I think gender really plays a role in it, but because we have been part of a society that's so patriarchal, this idea of being a provider is automatically um, seen as more valuable than maybe being someone who has other things to offer, but not financial security. And so I think, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, you know, women were attracted to that symmetrical guy (laughs) who um, was probably going to be able to fight off anyone who could potentially hurt them or the children and also earn a living. And so, and so there's the physical attractiveness contributes to that sort of, let's just take a a man and a woman from 200,000 years ago and use them as an example. So the man, if he's physically attractive, uh, will be able to have self-esteem through, uh, he's going to feel good about himself. Other people will look at him and they will trust him. And so they will trust him with their resources or power or social capital or whatever. And then if he's strong uh, or maybe even mentally cunning and is good at trapping. Yeah. Although physical attraction and strength evolutionarily are intertwined because right. the factors of physical attraction are like a wide set jaw and like, you know, things that like things that really aren't associated with actual attractive, like, you know, aesthetic attractiveness, but really strength. And the, the man can then either provide, or, yeah, he, he's physically capable to kill the bear and work long hours on a hunt and, and whatever. And then what's the flip side? What's the female side of that? Is it, you know, evolutionarily, what, what were men looking for in women? A small hip to waist ratio. So small waists, large hips, good for childbearing, but then small waist, um, most of the fat around our midsection is what is correlated with like cardiovascular disease. And so the smaller you are around your midsection, the better prognosis you have. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you have like, you know, fat on your rear end or something like that, relatively speaking. And so that's, that's, that, that was the factor that people were looking for. So again, it's, it's about survival, right? It's about, um, <laughs> it's about how, how powerful of a coalition can we build for survival? So let's be clear about this for people who haven't thought about this as much. It's not that every man wanted a woman with a small waist and a big butt. It's that the men who did want women with large hips and small waists are selected over time to survive because the men who marry those women or whether or not they got married, who spend time with, who, uh, who, who join those women. Certainly, you know, um, building some coalition building with those women, some sort of coalition building. (laughs) I have a particular type of coalition in mind, but, uh, so the idea with this is that selection works very slowly over long periods of time. And the idea is just, so you have all these men, you have 10,000 men at a time. And some of them like stocky, like, you know, like Scandinavian German stocky woman and some of them like curvy women uh, with small waists. Over time, the curvy women will uh, live longer because they won't have heart diseases as early, which means they will reproduce more, which means that the uh, genetic tendency to like a certain type of body shape will become prevalent over time in the entire 
population. I just think it's not everybody thinks about this every day, but that's what we mean. It, it's not that, oh, so obviously every Neanderthal with a wide set jaw was attractive. No, some people liked nerds like me. Some of the women mm-hmm. were really into like geeky guys with a little bit of a beer paunch. But <laughs> over time, if I lived... That didn't survive. <laughs> exactly. I'm lucky to live now because over time, it's I would be less likely to produce offspring because I'm I'm just less likely to attract that kind of a mate. So that's just to be clear. That's what we're talking about when we talk yeah. about the evolutionary selection process. So it is interesting. You know, it is interesting to think about, and I haven't done this in a while, so it's kind of fun to do it. Is to think about, you know, why is it that we um, inherently value people who seem like they are um, financially secure. And so it's interesting to think about it in light of this, right? It was, we all deal with existential angst. We want to feel secure. We want to feel like um, the coalitions that we are building are actually going to lead to a better outcome than if we didn't build them. And so it's interesting to think about that and how much that shapes our biases now in light of the fact that so many of us, whether we're people of like, you know, formal faith or not, so many of us are principled and we'd like to believe (laughs) that we're beyond that. Right. I mean, we'd like to believe that, you know, we aren't driven by our existential angst and we aren't just searching for to, to connect ourselves with whomever will make us feel the most secure or can help us yeah, feel, feel the most secure by offering us their security or feel the most secure by, you know, connecting us to our own pathway of security, right? I mean, and it's interesting because it, tur- it turns out we are perhaps a little bit more Neanderthalish than we'd like to be. Because I think most people would agree with you that they at least want to think of themselves as believing that, you know, every human is infinitely valuable, whether they're people of, you know, religious faith or not. I think that for the record, when I listen to like secular humanists, I don't hear phrases like infinitely valuable. I would consider that a religious conviction that I have, but they would still say very valuable and more valuable than any other life. And, and that's essentially for the, for the purposes of this discussion, those are, those are equal. All right. So rather than continuing to go use examples, let's just in your own mind, everybody take what we just talked about, about gender and money and apply it to race and political ideology in your own head. Let's talk about political ideology zooming out a bit. What do we know about why people are fundamentally conservative in general or fundamentally progressive in general, like in their just outlook? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it has to do with how we're raised, you know, it's not really like the the debate over nature versus nurture isn't really a debate anymore. It's really just a question of how much is nature and how much is nurture. So, you know, a significant part of it is, is nurture. You know, we are socialized to believe certain things. Um, But there's also, there are also some really significant personality characteristics that have been shown to um, to be correlated with conservatism. Ari Kruglansky is the um, social psychologist who's most closely um, identified with this research. Um, but he's he's looked at like actual personality characteristics um, that are, you know, fairly stable. Personality is like really stable from like teens through the rest of your life. Um, it's pretty predictable. There are people tweak a little bit, but they don't really change personality wise. Is that why I still listen to punk rock even in my mid 30s? Is that a personality characteristic? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's probably why, because when I was a teenager, like I, punk was like so appealing to me. And now to this day, even though like I have a good job, I own my home, like I make a good living. If I see a dude on a yacht, I'm like, F- 
that guy. <laughs> that rich guy. That's my first thought. And then I have to back up and go, oh, I don't know. He might be great and just has a yacht. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, that could actually be a personality thing now that you've unpacked it a little bit. But yeah. um, one of the factors that um, Kruglansky has discovered is that some people are high in need for cognitive closure. And some people are low in need for cognitive closure. So if you are a low in need for cognitive closure, you're actually someone like me. Many academics are no are low in need. We don't need to have the answers to everything. We're really um, stimulated by the question. Uh, we're okay with answers like it depends um, <laughs> or, you know, very nuanced things. Um, we are absolutely fine with gray area we like to dive into that. Now, people who are, are lower in cognitive closure tend to be liberal. Um, and if you look at the way that liberals even talk about the world, it is a lot more, um, the answers are not as tidy. They're, it's usually like, it's a lot of it, it depends. Now, there are some people who are just naturally really high in need for cognitive closure. And um, so the studies that he has done show that if you are high in need for cognitive closure and you are given the option between an answer that, that you are told, this is not necessarily the correct answer, but it's a tidy answer versus here's a much more untidy answer, but probably closer to the truth. People who are high in co need for cognitive closure will choose the tidy, perhaps incorrect answer. Consciously choose it because they're that uncomfortable personality wise. This isn't like a, you know, there's no, there's no morality associated with this, right? It's, it, personality is like amoral, <laughs> um, but it's just, they, they are uncomfortable with any sort of cognitive openness or ambiguity. Do we have any idea what the cause of, of that difference is between two brains or we just can observe it? I'm not, I actually, I haven't read any um, neuroscience research on this particular uh, individual difference. There probably is some, but I, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. But just based on other personality types, like it is some function of like the shape of this part of your brain or whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes it, it comes down to, you know, which neurotransmitters are firing more um, intensely or something like that. So it can, ha it can have something to do with brain chemistry and not, not just the actual anatomy. Is cognitive closure related to nurture as well? Like, is it if you have, you know, a, a mother or father who is constantly hammering on that growing up? Yeah, I mean, that's what's so challenging about this nature and nurture interaction, because some of the interactions are um, very passive, in the sort of passive genotypical interactions where, like, you're born into a family where you have parents who are really, like, high in cognitive closure, so then they create a family home where there's very, very, very little tolerance for ambiguity, mm -hmm. and so then you're kind of shaped towards that. And then there are also kind of much more active uh, genotype um, interactions where, you know, as an adult, you choose to put yourself in situations that are, aren't going to challenge your, your high needs. So, you know, you might just feel more comfortable, I'm saying that in quotes, you know, in a really, really, really conservative fundamentalist church. And you don't, you can't explain why it's so, it just feels good to you. But, you know, if you were to assess your personality, it'd be pretty predictable why you're there. So it's hard to say, you know, how much of these personalities are formed, you know, by the environment. It makes me think of people who are raised uh, in really conservative religious environments and then become like really staunch atheists 
and with instead of uh, the type who kind of like, oh, I doubt a lot of this now, and now I think that you know there could be a god, but it's it's really complicated. It's probably not Christianity. The people who are just like, no, it's Dawkins or you know or go home. Yeah. So, I mean, so something like this would explain um, that consistency, that sort of consistent fundamentalism. (laughs) It doesn't matter where they're being fundamentalists, but, you know, um, that certainly, you know, would make sense in light of this research. This is this is heavy stuff, man. It's sort of hard to realize. It's like when AI robots wake up in a movie or something and and like figure out that they weren't born. It's kind of like that. Uh, it's a lower level, but it's like watching Westworld. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No spoilers, but it is uh, one of my favorite shows of the year. But it, it it's hard to sort of like to realize how much of what I think is purely coming from my own self could be statistically guessed at really accurately if someone just knew these factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of what we do is really predictable. Um, especially once social psychologists, Kahneman and Tversky, who were like, you know, given a Nobel Prize for their work, as soon as they, you know, dispelled us of any notion of rationality, <laughs> then it became really easy to predict, you know, based on a person's emotional state or based on their group identity or based on whether their self-esteem is high or low or based on whether they have a lot of cognitive resources or very limited cognitive resources. Like we can predict what, what people are going to do in a situation. So now that leads people to believe, well, then is there any free will? And I recently was reading a little bit from Sam Harris, who believes there's no free will, which I I don't find him super convincing. Reading Jonathan Haidt, whose book, uh, The Righteous Mind, I mentioned earlier, which I would highly recommend to people. he, He has a more nuanced view, which is that you can change over time. And arguments do work. They usually work when they're presented by other people that you trust. And you can kind of change your intuitions over time. Or if you want to talk about it in terms of like character building, you know, you can have certain practices that turn you into a different kind of person, but the work is is fairly slow. Do you think there's any room? Is there hope for people to change? Are, Are we all set from basically our teenage years or whatever, however we were raised and whatever sort of fundamental stuff we've got to work with, or do you find hope for living a different kind of a life? And if so, what are the mechanisms that get us to something better? Yeah. You know, um, I do believe that we can change. I'd probably be a little bit more aligned with uh, Jonathan Haidt's perspective. I'm not sure about free will in the sense that even as we do change, we're changing from something that was out of our control. <laughs> you know, I think that it's not just the practices, but I, you know, I think because so much of us are shaped, we're, we're at our heart of social animals at the very core um, and we're shaped by our environment. And so I have seen, it is slow, but I have seen the most effective change, even at the sort of instinctual non-conscious or close to non-conscious, very little cognitive resources that I'm relying on, but I'm still making these decisions. Um, I've seen that happen typically when people change their entire environment. And so having one conversation about your bias towards, you know, socioeconomically oppressed people is not going to do much. Reorienting your life so that you're constantly coming in contact with and even collaborating with and learning from people who are, who are socioeconomically oppressed over time will reduce that bias. 
really the beautiful thing about our brain is that there's so much neuroplasticity, right? I mean, the reason why someone like me or you might associate poverty with stupidity or something like that is because over time in our environment, those two were constantly paired with each other in our memory. And so the link between them kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So we need to put ourselves in situations that are going to weaken that link. And then at the same time, develop links between poverty and other positive characteristics. But that's going to take time too. It's going to take at least as much time as it took for us to acquire these biases. So I think oftentimes, you know, people like us want to just have a quick fix. <laughs> and um, there is work. There's work to be done if, if we want to divest ourselves of these biases. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by that one, especially with money and class, because it is true. 200,000 years ago, if you're in a little roving band of humans and two people are the same height and physical strength and one of them goes out and works and kills an animal and the other one just kind of hangs around the camp and and like is content to live with less food and and worse bear fur you know coats or whatever like that person is contributing less back then it's pretty straightforward and we have 250,000 years of that to deal with before agrarian society when people could start to hoard things. And then there's still some truth to like, well, you know, are you a good farmer? You you got lucky with the land maybe or whatever. And then comes like modern banking and exponential wealth growth. And it's just a totally different game. And unless we can realize that we live in a totally different system than 98% of human history lived in, which we are hardwired for, we, we, we just will simply, it's not even just that we will be racist or, or classist. We're just f-ing wrong. We're just actually yeah. incorrect. It no longer is that way. It was that way. And that's why we think of it this way, but it isn't anymore. Yeah. And even thinking about it from, um, you know, maybe an ethical perspective or a more philosophical perspective too is Now, we aren't engaging in the human experience that 98% of humans did, which starts to bring up questions as, you know, are we human? You know, are we experiencing humanity? Are we living into humanity? What does it mean to be human? You know, because so much of what, particularly those of us in the West, not only do we not experience the world the um, the way the vast majority of the world experiences it, um, but we also don't experience the world the way the vast majority of humans have experienced it. And yeah, there's there's lots of reasons why we should be motivated to divest ourselves of some of that. So we are running out of time here, but I would like to have you connect this to religious faith. I mean, you work at a divinity school and you speak at churches. That's uh, how I found out about you was you spoke at a friend of mine's church and he recommended I contact you. So how does, and we'll just, we'll keep it to Christianity for now since you work at a Christian, at least sort of Christian seminary in Duke. Hey, you've got like Richard B. Hayes and some really great, some really great guys there that I would love to study with. But so connect this to Jesus or Christianity in your mind. What's the link between all this stuff we just talked about, all the science and someone's faith? Yeah. You know, I think I, Part of the reasons why it's really interesting for me to be in a divinity school, and in this case, a Christian one, is because it's chilling, but also exciting to think about um, the discrepancy between what many Christians claim to believe 
in the way many Christians live their lives. That's, that's the chilling part. But the exciting part is starting to make some of those connections and invite people into really interrogating their faith um, versus their actions. And I mean, I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to reckon with all the us versus them, the groupishness, the the clean versus unclean, um, the valuable versus invaluable, the even the even social geography of our world. Because you know, most Christians would agree that Jesus came to, in at least in part. Um, address some of those differences simply by the way that he lived his life to say nothing of some of his sermons, like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount um, and the parables that he shared where he's clearly um, challenging people's notions of what's right and wrong, who's in and who's out, who's clean and who's not clean. Um, But simply, you know, Jesus's life of pretty much exclusively hanging out with people that most Christians wouldn't even bother to talk to (laughs) um, really challenges some of these notions. And so, you know, it is interesting to think about, you know, a lot of Christians like to, particularly Western Christians who are pretty like individualistic and um, think very linearly about their faith, um, would like to believe that everything about their life is a direct, <laughs> is a sort of direct fallout or um connection to their faith. So I think it is helpful when we start to look at, well, what's what's going on in our brain? What's going on in our evolutionary sort of DNA, social DNA? Um, what's going on outside of our conscious awareness? And talk about that in the context of, you know, evil or brokenness or sin or something like that. And then talk about what what would redemption look like? Um, and then what what might it cost me to participate in that? And, you know, that's why I think some of Jonathan Haidt's work can be really helpful, even though he doesn't identify as Christian, because he clearly believes that there is a journey. You can work, work this out in a way, in the way that Paul would talk about working out your salvation, right? You can work this out. It might be arduous. It might be painful. It might be uncomfortable. Um, but we also um, claim to follow a leader who went down a similar path that led to the cross. And so there's a lot to mine there theologically, if we're willing to do that. I feel like the more I learn about my brain and the way that I've been socialized and how I'm going to by default to do things as opposed to how I think things should be, I feel like the more that that happens, it's a call out of a naive faith into, I have to be willing to be broken apart, experience a lot of mental suffering and probably some physical suffering. And then through that, actually I will, see a world that's much more beautiful. And, and I, I think Jesus saying you have to lose your life to gain it. Uh, and the mustard seed being broken open into, you know, becoming a giant plant. Those are two really good like analogies for that. So that's me answering my question to you. <laughs> I'm a great interviewer, Christina. Okay. Last question for you. I know you have to go, but because this is a depolarizing show, a lot of what we've talked about here has been, you know, card carrying progressive kind of kind of commentary uh, which doesn't make it false but we do try and identify on this show bad arguments from the left as well are there some silly or overzealous or missing the point arguments that sound like these arguments that are false that get parroted a lot and are easy for progressives to absorb that make them feel good about themselves but that actually aren't helping this conversation move forward yeah, absolutely. So, 
Um, I think any statements that sort of um, equalize the playing field or make it seem like there aren't power differences, I think can easily be misused by the left. So I think the danger of a conversation like this is that people will walk away and say, well, I'm a little bit biased and you're a little bit biased and we're all a little bit biased. And, you know, um, so then it's like, well, if the homeless person on the street is a little bit biased towards me, my bias towards that person is way more hurtful <laughs> because right. I have power, right? I have power. So I think kind of a weak takeaway or a weak argument to take away from this would be that, you know, we're all a little bit broken in our brains and there's just nothing, you know, I don't, I don't need to take responsibility for that as someone who might have more power in our society. I think another challenge to this, this conversation, or at least the way that we had it today is that um, it could easily lead people to think that they don't have a responsibility to make things right. Um, we sort of inherited this mess. Um, some of it's evolutionary. Some of it's the way that I was socialized in my home. Um, therefore, you know, it's not really my responsibility. Um, and I can just, bad. yeah, I can just like send snarky tweets and I can, you know, whatever, laugh yeah. at my jokes from my comedians and I'm good. Cause what am I going to do? Yeah. And I think it's easy to walk away from this and not recognize the personal poverty and the social poverty that we all experience when there's inequality. And that this is actually a life and death situation for all of us, not just the black men on death row, because it's it's literally I mean, we go back and we look at these um, pre agrarian societies that were incredibly collaborative and the human connection that was happening like we are completely missing out on. And there's a poverty in that. There's a poverty in not knowing what the vast majority of the world, um, how the vast majority of the world experiences the world. And so I think, you know, religious or not, there's a moral impetus for us to really dig deep and take responsibility for what we have inherited, because we could pass it on or we can do something about it. So I think those are at least a couple of them. I think it's also easy to chalk everything that's happened in this election down to, you know, self-preservation or something like that. Um, and I think that's oversimplified. So <laughs> um, I think that's a factor, but there were a lot of factors. Yeah. Well, I, there's more I want to say, but <laughs> we're, we're done. So Christina, thank you so much. Where can people find you online if they want to connect? Yeah. Um, my website's an easy way to connect with me. Um, ChristinaCleveland.com. You just have to spell my name, right? It's Christina with an E. Um, and then I'm pretty easy to find too at the Duke website. And so, and then you have a book out. I do. I have a book called disunity in Christ, uncovering the hidden forces that keep us apart. I'm also working on a theology of privilege right now. That'll be out soon. So, um, and I'm, I blog a lot and I write a lot for different publications. So I'm easy to find online. Okay, great. And we'll have a link to your book as well as that Jonathan Haidt book on the show notes at depolarizedpodcast.com. And as usual, everyone else, you can find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H, and you can join us on the Facebook Depolarize Podcast Discussion Group. Thanks, Christina, for your time. I loved this conversation. Thank you. I'm honored that I got to be on it. All right. See you later. Okay. Bye.